When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes. Dreams of Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? Good, good, good. Uh, I will confess to you that today is, we've been coming here for like four weeks now. Today is the first day that we've been here early enough for me to catch that uh, announcement video at the beginning. Um, what does that communicate? Probably that my wife is in charge. Um, but anyways, let me pray. And then we'll go ahead and jump into it. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy, uh, for the kindness and mercy that you've shown to us in the provision of your Son and his sacrifice for us, God. Uh, Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your character, that we can always trust in you and know that you're faithful, you're faithful to carry through uh, with every word and every work that you've begun. Uh, so we love you, Lord. Father, I ask, would you please uh, be so kind as to fill us with your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to you. I pray that we would submit to you in humility, God. Uh, and Father, would you even use a vessel as weak as me uh, to communicate your word faithfully. We love you, God. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Psalm 126, this is a psalm that is all about restoration. Uh, so we got two big sections in the psalm, verses 1 through 3. Here, the psalmist is describing uh, the, the past restoration that God had provided for his people. He describes what that experience was like. And then the second half, verses 4 through 6, it contains the psalmist's current, his present petition for restoration. And even though we can't place this psalm, like we can't uh, find its historical setting uh, exactly, like we don't know its exact historical context, what we do see is a lot of farming imagery. Uh, so we have the sowing of tears, people weeping as they carry seed out into the field. And what this suggests uh, is that for, for their setting, for their situation, is that they're experiencing a rather severe famine a depletion of wealth and resources that's caused by famine. Now, restoration as described in this psalm is connected to fortunes, right? God restored their fortunes in the past, and they're asking him to do it again. However, uh, we shouldn't think that the psalmist is asking God to make him wealthy simply for the, the sake of being wealthy. Uh, he's not asking God for the Old Testament equivalent of a Ferrari or a boat uh, or an iPhone 14 or whatever sort of symbol we might have or there might have been for wealth and status. That's, that's not what's going on at all because in the Old Testament, famine was one of the curses for covenant disobedience. Now, if you're new to Bible study, covenant might seem like a 
kind of big new Bible word. Uh, but in reality, like the, the, the concept, the idea behind covenant is one that is very simple. So a covenant uh, is a binding relationship of commitment. So let's take marriage, for example. Marriage is a covenant, uh, and two people are bound for life to be in this relationship of love and commitment. That is very similar to how we should think about uh, God's relationship, God's covenant with his people. So God has committed to be our God, and we have committed to be his people. We have committed to be in that type of relationship with him. So we can really say that God is our God. He is my God. And he, of course, says that we are his people. He has taken ownership of us, and we have taken ownership, in that sense, of him. He's our God. So in the Old Testament, when they were in this covenant relationship with God, they had uh, blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for disobedience. Uh, and, and again, one of those curses was famine. So you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 38 through 40. Here we see that for disobedience to the covenant, one of the curses that would come upon the people again was famine. Here it is written, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine, nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You see, the depletion of resources, and, and in other words, the removal of fortunes caused by famine was a covenant curse. So what is clearly implicit in the psalmist's petition for a restoration of fortunes is the restoration of the people in their covenant relationship with God. They needed restoration with their great provider. The proper biblical view of fortunes and wealth never sees those things as something that is separate from a relationship with the Lord. So if God has blessed you with abundance, which he has blessed many of us in the West with abundance, but if he has blessed you with abundance, know that you have not received that just for the sake of you being able to spend your money on whatever you want. God has given you that abundance for his glory and so that you can serve him through that abundance. My point is, is that restoration is first about relationship. It should have been the first thing for the people of God in the Old Testament and it should be the first thing for us. Restoration for someone in covenant with the Lord is all about relationship. But unfortunately, we're not so quick to realize that our most desperate need for restoration is restoration with the Lord. Literally nothing is right until that relationship becomes right. Like we are too accustomed. I am too accustomed to, put it, to uh, letting sin put distance between me and the Lord. All too often we go about our days full of self-centered ambition, seeking pleasure instead of seeking God, and being willfully and constantly distracted by so much of the noise of this world. The wonderful thing about this psalm 
is that it teaches us about the, the beauty of God's restorative work. It can recenter our focus back on relationship and back onto the Savior that gave his life to purchase it for us. It brings to mind some lines from, uh, from a hymn that was written in the early 1900s called The Love of God. And I won't sing it for you, so you are welcome for that. Uh, but here's, here's how it goes. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It would be one thing for me to tell you that God's love for you is infinite, but it would be another thing entirely for me to quote the words of this hymn. And that is because we are finite beings. We don't have a category in our brains for what is infinite. And so what we need is context, something we can relate to, some structures built up in our mind which are then broken through so that we can catch a glimpse of what infinite is like. The same thing goes for restoration. I could tell you that the restoration that God provides will be infinite in blessedness, or we could reflect on this psalm together. The main idea of this psalm is that God's work of restoration in the past secures the assurance of his promises for the future. God's work of restoration in the past secures the assurance of his promises for the future. Therefore, we can be confident that God is still at work restoring his people today. Our restoration is rooted in the past. It points to what God will do in the future. Therefore, we can be confident that God is alive and at work today. We've got three points that will help us examine this psalm. One, Zion's past restoration. Two, Zion's future hope. And three, Zion's present expectation. I promise it's not beer, though I have drank beer out of that before. Um, it's not today. Uh, so point number one, let's move on to point number one. The first thing that we see about this psalm is that it is Zion's restoration, right? Zion is the, the, the subject that is being identified. They're the ones that are being restored. And uh, in the Bible, this term Zion, is, it's kind of a loaded word. Uh, sometimes it's used as a metaphor for the historical city of Jerusalem. Uh, other times, oftentimes in poetry, actually, th there's quite a few biblical themes woven into the, this one word. So it is full of theological significance. Two things that we want to keep in mind for our text today. So number one, Zion is used as a term to basically name the people of God in both the Old and the New Testaments. So let's take, for example, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, in Revelation 21, we have the holy city that comes down from heaven Okay, it is Zion that comes down, and then it is subsequently called the Bride of Christ. 
So the bride, the people of God, are the city. It's like how we talk about church here, which is the right way to talk about church. Uh, The church is not a building, right? The church is a people. So Zion is a term for the people of God in both the Old and the New Testaments. The second key theme that we find associated with the term Zion is that of God's presence. Zion is the place specifically, especially where God dwells with his people. You see, in the Old Testament, Zion was special because even though heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain the glory of God, God has still graciously chosen to dwell in a personal manner in Zion in the temple. And many times throughout the Bible, we will see that this dwelling place is spoken of as the perfected heavenly city that God will provide at the end of the age when he restores all things. So there is this end times flavoring uh, to this word. So while at face value, Zion is a metaphor for the historical city of Jerusalem, uh, when we think of it uh, being referred to here in Psalm 126, we want to keep in mind that this is the restoration of God's people and his presence among them. It's the restoration of relationship. Now in verse 1, the psalmist likens this past experience of restoration to a dream. And that's a little bit ambiguous, but if we keep reading, we get a little bit, you know, he tells us what this restoration was like. Uh, He says that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with shouts of joy and gladness. So the restoration that God had provided, it was the cause of great joy. It was the cause of great celebration. And so magnificent was this restoration that even enemy nations had to take notice. So great that they had to say something about it. And the confession that they make is even repeated by the psalmist, right? The nations say the Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist follows that up. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. So the restoration the Lord brought about was really quite remarkable. Again, so grand was it that it was likened to a dream. Now I want you to think for a minute. Have you ever had an experience that was so good that you thought to yourself, am I dreaming right now? This is so good. I cannot believe this is going on. Uh, When me and my wife first got married, we took our honeymoon uh, in Iceland. And the pictures really, they don't do it justice. Like it is an insanely beautiful country. We had a rental car. We were just staying in a couple Airbnbs on the island. And seriously, everywhere we drove, no matter where we looked, like breathtaking visuals, breathtaking landscape. Uh, One night we even saw the, the northern lights there just cutting across the sky. It was incredible. So here I am, right, in this, in the most beautiful country with the most beautiful woman in the world. And there were times where I thought to myself, is this for real? Like, what on earth did I do to deserve this? You know, just a a much more recent experience where I had that sort of feeling. Uh, It was just a couple weeks ago when we moved into our apartment in Yomitan. 
Um, as many of you could probably assume, there's no such thing as an American-sized, king-sized mattress off base. So what we did is we took two twin-sized mattresses, put them on the floor, put a king-sized fitted sheet over it, and then while we, while we were at it, we just thought to ourselves, well, why don't we make this as fun and comforting as possible for our girls? So we took my oldest daughter's twin-sized mattress, shoved it up against our bed. Now they can have sleepovers, hopefully not forever, but uh, at this point they're having sleepovers with us every night. And I mean, half the room is a mattress. Uh, it is a bed room. Um, it was like the first night that we did this. And I wake up the next morning to the sound of my girl's laughter. And like the, the sunlight is peeking through the curtains. And I open my eyes and they're just so happy. They're so pumped. They're so full of excitement to see each other and to see us. And I just thought to myself, man, I have an awesome family. Like, what did I do to deserve this? Right, that is the idea that is being developed here in verses one through three. This restoration was so good that you'd have to pinch yourself to make sure that you weren't asleep, that you weren't dreaming. And again, it is so magnificent precisely because it is the restoration of Zion. Zion is God's people and his presence among them. It is the restoration of relationship. It is the restoration of God's favor. Now, I think at times when we think about this word restoration, it seems like, sometimes it can seem like something that is way out there, right? Way off in the future, it's never going to touch us, right? It has nothing to do with us, not, at least not in this lifetime. It's something way out there. What does it have to do with us? But when the psalmist speaks of restoration, he is touching on the significance of what God did for his people in history, what God really did for his people. So it's not an abstract concept. The psalmist wants us to understand that the restoration that he speaks of is rooted in historical realities, the great things that God really did for his people. In the Old Testament, God's people did not look at their restoration. Apart from what God had done for his people in the past, and maybe that kind of seems like an obvious point, but if we try to think of like really tangible examples of restoration, you know, at least for me, some of the things that my mind jumps to are like when I was converted, like when we were first converted, maybe a mountaintop experience, something like a retreat. Right, that's what I kind of picture as restoration. Uh, a time when God had really provided for my needs or, or healed in some kind of way. Right, usually our idea of restoration kind of has this subjective flavoring. But when the Israelites thought about restoration, they thought about their history. We're apt to think of ourselves as independent from other believers. And what can be an unfortunate consequence of that is that we'll begin to see the restoration of, of previous generations as, well, that's their, that's their restoration. That belongs to them. 
That has nothing to do with us. But their restoration is our restoration because we are the people of Zion. It is Zion's restoration. It is our restoration. Again, this psalm gives us a picture of how wonderful it is to be restored to God, to find favor with him, to receive his covenant blessings. And from our position in history, like what is the pinnacle instance of God restoring his wayward people? What is the pinnacle instance of this? Well, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That historical reality that happened way back then secured our restoration. Now, how often do we look at that historical reality and think to ourselves, well, this is so good, I must be dreaming. Right now, I'm talking to myself here too. Do we look at the work of Jesus Christ and respond like the psalmist does? Look, if, if we woke up one day to realize that some billionaire adopted us, uh, you know, pick your favorite billionaire. I'm not sure if there should be a favorite billionaire, but let's say a billionaire adopted you so that you could inherit all their riches. You'd think to yourself, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, I can do whatever I want now. Like, I have all the resources, all the freedom in the world. Am I dreaming? As adopted children of God, we belong to the one. We are sons and daughters of the one who owns everything, the king of the universe. And he has adopted us. Why? in order to lavish upon us the riches of his grace and kindness. When we consider that, I feel like we have to say with the psalmist, did that really happen? Am I dreaming? I mean, what did I do to deserve this? And that's the thing, isn't it? I didn't do anything to deserve this. In a thousand lifetimes, I wouldn't be able to do anything to deserve the grace and kindness that he has shown me. I haven't prioritized relationship like I should. I haven't valued Jesus like I should. Yet, he is still so kind that he would give up everything, even his own life, so that I could have the one thing that is more valuable than anything else in this world, a restored relationship with the king, with God. To belong to God in Jesus Christ is like the dream of dreams made a reality. So the psalmist, he wants to root our, our hope for the present in God's historical acts of redemption but he also wants to point us to the future. We'll see that there's a future, what I should really say, uh, an eschatological aspect to this psalm. And I know sometimes when we hear that word eschatology, that, 
that might come across as a, another big Bible word. But I can promise you that, that when this word is used correctly, um, it's not talking about like identifying who the Antichrist is or whether or not we're supposed to rebu rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. No, this term simply means things related to the end, the things that happened at the end of the age. So there is a future aspect to the psalm, and that's what we're getting into in our second point. I already mentioned how the term Zion is connected in many places with the, the perfect heavenly city and people, but there are two other ways, two, two key ways that we see uh, this future, this eschatological, this end times aspect to the psalm. And that is in uh, some thematic similarities between this psalm and explicitly prophetic texts and in the, in the way that the nations are spoken of. So first looking at thematic similarities between Psalm 126 uh, and explicitly prophetic texts. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to read through verses 23 through 26. So that's Jeremiah 31, 23 through 26. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Now, I did put together a little chart of thematic similarities between uh, Psalm 126 and Jeremiah chapter 31. I believe it is, it is printed on some sermon notes in the back. Um, it's also up on the screen. Hopefully you can see that, that well enough. But whether you're looking at it in your Bible or, or you're looking at the screen... I just want to run through these similarities real quick. So in both Psalm 126 and Jeremiah 31, we have the restoration of fortunes, the people of God, or the people confessing the great works of God, the restoration of the weary and grieving. We have farming imagery in both places, and then we have a reference to sleep. So quite a few connections between this passage and Psalm 126. And the second way we see an eschatological outlook to this psalm is in the way that the, the nations are referenced. So in verse 2, the nations are referred to in a collective manner. They're all saying with one voice, the Lord has done great things for them. And again, this is the same confession that the psalmist uses in verse 3. Now, when we see this type of language in the Bible... It is almost exclusively used to refer to the end of the age. Right? It's, it's almost always used in an eschatological sense when we see the nations doing something positive like this. Because a lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll see nations, they're the enemy of Israel. 
But when we see this sort of language, again, that's end times kind of language. So just, uh, just one reference to go through. I mean, there's, there's a ton of them in the Bible, but uh, one more from Jeremiah 31, verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So here the nations, they're told to announce something. They're told to announce to the people, to the people of God, the fact that God is going to gather them and restore them. So they're being described as heralds of the great things that God is going to do for his people. If you're interested in this, if you have time, all you need to do is look at your ESV Bible app on your phone and search the word nations. And then just look in the book of Isaiah alone. And you'll see time and time again uh, that the nations are spoken of as witnesses to the great things that God is promising for his people. So what we want to note is that when, when scripture speaks of the nations in this positive manner, that is when the last days have arrived. This, so this is eschatological, this is end times, last days language. Okay, in the way that the nations are referred to in this psalm then, there's a future hope embedded in the past restoration that he is speaking of. So we have forward-pointing realities here. And this is the point. The psalmist describes this past act, this historical fact of God's goodness, which points to, it foreshadows a future hope. And likewise, when we have that same thing going on in our lives as well, right? We have the historical work of God in Christ, and this historical work contains the assurance, it contains the future hope of God's perfect kingdom where we will experience a complete restoration, right? A Zion that is so good, that it is so good that it is worth giving up everything for. It is worth pursuing with all of our energy. Now, do I have any fans of the Chronicles of Narnia in here? You raise your hand. Okay. So, homeschool parents, question mark? There, there's more of you in this in this service than the last one. I, I too, will one day be a homeschool parent, and I like the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but one of my favorite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia is this talking mouse named Reepicheep. He's like a real mouseketeer, like if you just envision that. <laughs> so he's small, obviously, because he's a mouse, and he wields the sword, but He's like, he's afraid of nothing. He has no fear. No matter how great the enemy, he's the most courageous, fearless character. Like the only thing that he fears is Aslan. He fears one person, Aslan. And if you don't know the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan symbolizes Jesus Christ. So he's got one goal in life. He's got one fear in life. Uh, and, his and his goal is to reach Aslan's country, right? That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants more than anything else is to see Aslan face to face. So in one of the last books in this series, he's on this expedition, on this ship that goes to the end of the earth. 
Uh, and they, they basically reach the end of the earth. They can see it. Uh, and most of the crew decide to turn back, but the mouse, he wants to continue. He wants to pursue Aslan's country as far as he is able. And you know, everyone's warning him of the, of the danger. They're trying to get him to turn around. But again, he wants nothing more than to see Aslan face to face. So this is what he says. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east on the Dawn Treader. When she fails, I paddle in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, or if I have shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. In other words, he's determined to go east, beyond the end of the world where Aslan's country is. And if he does not make it, he will die with his face to the sunrise, to the east, looking to that better country. I mean, this is a picture. It is a good picture of how good God's kingdom is. It is so good that it is worth pursuing with all of our being, all of our energy. And when the mouse makes it to the precipice of actually physically entering Aslan's country, C.S. Lewis writes that he was trembling. He was quivering with happiness. Again, this is such a good picture for us of how we should long for this better country, to see God face to face, have nothing hinder that relationship with him, to experience his kingdom in its fullness and to dwell there for the rest of eternity. So just to summarize what we've covered so far, as the psalmist reflects on God's objective real deliverance in the past. We also see that he's foreshadowing a secured future hope of perfect restoration, right? In Jesus Christ, the kingdom has come, right? The kingdom is upon us because the king is here. And it's consummation, the consummation of this kingdom is a secured reality. Like, I want you to know that this kingdom, the coming of this kingdom, is not something that might happen. It is something that will happen. And this is why the psalmist can be so confident with his present petition. All right, and that brings us to our last point. So I mentioned before the uh, psalmist's Situation is quite difficult, right? There's people going out to their fields, right? They're, they're doing their farming with tears, sowing seeds as they weep. But if we take a look at the parallels and the poetic lines at the, at the end of this psalm, uh, we can see what the psalmist's expectation is, even in the midst of this time of great trial and suffering. Right, so in verse 4, the psalmist prays, O Lord, please restore our fortunes. Right, please restore your covenant favor to us. And then at the end, we see his expectation in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Joy, that is the result of God's restoration, and that is what the psalmist is confident of. And the reason, again, that he can be so confident is because of the work that God had done in the past and the promises that he has secured for the future. Right? God's people shall reap. They shall go out to their work in the morning with shouts of joy, and then they shall return home in the evening with shouts of joy. So joy will replace tears from beginning to end. That is the restoration that awaits us. And that is what the psalmist is confident of. And likewise, we need to look at our current circumstances in light of God's past acts of redemption and his future promises. God sees our current difficulties and afflictions. He sees our sicknesses, our weaknesses, our desperate cries, Right, the things that we can barely articulate, the things that keep us up at night. God knows all of it. And we can come to him with confidence, with the knowledge that he provides restoration for his people today because he has done it in the past and he absolutely will do it in the future. The death of Christ and his triumph over the grave is the historical. It is the objective, it is the material cause of our restoration. So we can look at that event, the fact that Jesus lives, and we can know for a fact that God has restored his people. That historical work has secured our future hope of perfect restoration. And we would do well to reflect on how costly this restoration was. Because God's very own beloved son, Jesus Christ, infinite in glory and honor and power, the most perfect valuable, wonderful person you could ever know gave up his riches so that our fortunes could be restored. So that the blessings of God's covenant favor would come upon us and overwhelm us like torrents in the desert. He came to his earth that is cursed because of our sin And he breathed our cursed air and he walked on our cursed ground so that he could take every last drop of punishment that we deserve and put it to death in his body that hung lifeless on a cross. Was he obligated to do that for us? No. Not for a single moment. He did that out of his love for the Father and the supreme grace and kindness he has towards us. 
I mean, what do you say about someone like that? What can be said about a God so amazing? I'm speechless. I know that I should be able to articulate and explain things. But he is so far beyond anything that I could ever tell you. I am utterly inadequate to describe his infinite glory to you. If I had a million lifetimes, I could not speak of him highly enough. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Because of the great love with which he loved us, God has restored us to himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can know for a fact that God has secured this perfect restoration for one simple fact. Because Jesus lives. The Lord has done great things for his people. The Lord has done great things for us. Let us be glad. And let's respond with gladness in worship. Thank you.